0: Five, four, three, two, one, zero, all engine runner, off. we have a Welcome space enthusiasts. This is another short teaching episode similar to the one we had a couple of months ago when I was talking about which business models exist in space in episode number 34 at the end of May. Today we will talk about SpaceX's Starship. As usual though, here are a couple of messages from our sponsors, then I'll be right back. My name is Raphael Rodkin and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by NanoAvionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with the CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I am an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. So, today's topic is inspired by recent events in Boca Chica, Texas at what is now called Starbase, the facility where SpaceX is building its Starship launch system. Many of you, I'm sure, will have seen the full Starship system, that is the Starship upper stage and the super heavy booster, being stacked one on top of the other for the first time ever on the orbital launch pad in Boca Chica about a week ago. If you have not, check out the pictures online it is a sight to behold so today we will have three parts in part one i will give you an overview of starship in part two i will try to explain why starship is so exciting from a business point of view and in part three i have sort of a call to arms for the entrepreneurially inclined among you okay part one so what is Starship? And by the way, let me start with an obvious caveat here. Starship is currently in development. Design decisions are still being made. So any specs that I mention here may well change again. If you want to keep up to date, well, one of the best sources is actually Elon Musk's Twitter account, including responses he gives to other people's tweets. That being said, let's look at what we know right now about Starship. Starship is a launch system that says, colloquially, a rocket and one of those powerful enough to get you to orbit. And that is the main idea behind it, ultimately also to deep space locations like the Moon, Mars, and Mars really is the main idea, and even other locations. So we call the entire system Starship, but it actually consists of two parts or two stages, as many rockets do. A booster stage called Super Heavy, and then an upper stage, which is also called Starship. Well, there are a lot of rockets by now, On paper, in our internal database at E2MC Ventures, I think we have around 200 or so launch companies worldwide in various stages of developments, various sizes, various countries, and so forth. But in my mind, there are at least three things that really stand out about Starship for me. First, it is big, really big. In fact, Starship is just the latest name of this vehicle. Some years ago, it started out, I think, being called the Mars Colonial Transporter, or MCT. And then at some point in time, Elon actually inappropriately called it the BFR, which allegedly could stand for Big Falcon Rocket. But most of the people thought, and Elon made it quite clear, that it probably also means, quite appropriately, Big effing Rocket. So what is big? How big is big? Let's look at a few metrics. The full stack of the Super Heavy Booster And the Starship, so what we saw about a week ago on Boca Chica, is almost 120 meters high. The booster being around 69 meters, 69 being a sort of famous Elon number for those of you who know. And Starship adding another 50 meters on top, so getting you to 119 meters. But that is taller than the 111 meters of the Saturn V U.S. moon rocket or the 105 meters of the Soviet and one moon rocket, which actually never flew to orbit. As another comparison, the Statue of Liberty is 93 meters high. Next, let's talk about thrust. So this depends a little bit on what the final configuration of the Starship system is going to be. Both of the super heavy booster and the Starship upper stage are powered by space axis, Raptor engines. Okay, I guess we should talk briefly about those Raptor engines first. The Raptor is what is called a full-flow staged combustion engine. That is a very sophisticated rocket engine design. Engine designs actually go beyond our scope today. If you want to know more about them, and it's a really interesting topic, at least I think, I recommend, for example, the excellent intro video by Everyday Astronaut on YouTube. Raptors use methane as fuel and liquid oxygen as oxidizers. So that is different from the Falcon 9, which is using kerosene as fuel and then liquid oxygen as oxidizer. And as usual, there is a sea level version of the engine and a vacuum version. For those of you into rocket engine metrics, let me also mention the specific impulse, measure of efficiency, which is around 350 seconds for the sea level and 380 seconds for the vacuum version of the Raptor. Those are actually quite good numbers. Each Raptor generates about 230 tons of thrust. This is more than twice the thrust of SpaceX's other engine, the Merlin, which they are using on the the current workhorse rocket, the Falcon 9. Okay, back to total thrust then. The super heavy booster is expected to have between 29 to 32 Raptor engines. 29 on the currently latest version, uh, the one that just got stacked, which is called BN-4, and the Starship orbital upper stage has three vacuum raptors and three sea-level raptors. So if you do the math on the higher numbers, you get to around 8,700 tons of total thrust. The majority, of course, comes from the super-heavy booster, and this is the way we typically look at it, and the super-heavy booster with its engine would generate around 7,400 tons of thrust launch from Earth. As a comparison, the Saturn V had 3,470 tons of thrust at launch and the Falcon Heavy, the currently most powerful operational orbital rocket, has about 2,300 tons. Now speaking of tons, let's talk about mass next. And again, remember that things are likely to still move around with design decisions and design optimization. A fair guess for total mass at launch of the Starship system, so that is the structural mass, the propellant mass, propellant being fuel and oxidizer, and the payload, the maximum payload mass, is around 5,000 tons. So that would also give you a thrust-to-weight ratio around 1.5, which is sort of a not, not very surprising number. As usual, we are enslaved to the tyranny of the what's called the rocket equation. And one of the things that means is that the, the payload, the stuff that you can actually take to space, the mass of the payload is a very small percentage of total mass, around 3%. Now, because Starship is so huge, it being a big effing rocket. That 3% turns out to be up to 150 metric tons, though, delivering that to a low Earth orbit or LEO, and maybe around 20 tons to a geostationary orbit, which is much, much higher. Now, the idea, though, as mentioned, is to develop the capability to refuel Starship in Earth orbit. So if you can do that, you restore its payload capacity back to over 100 tons, even to deep space locations like the Moon or, of course, Mars. That's a lot of payload capacity. SpaceX's Falcon 9 can take at most 23.6 tons. If you do not bring back the first stage, Falcon Heavy can take up to 64 tons under the, almost 64 tons under the same assumptions. The Space Shuttle as a comparison could take around 29 tons. All those numbers I'm giving you here are payload capacity to low Earth orbit again, so like a few hundred kilometers above the Earth's surface. Okay, payload mass is one thing. The other interesting important thing is volume, payload volume, and Starship has a payload volume of around between 1,000 to 1,100 cubic meters, and as a comparison, this is more than an Airbus A380 total volume, so the volume of its passenger cabin and the cargo hold, and the Airbus A380, of course, is the largest passenger aircraft currently in operation. To put payload mass and volume into another context, the entire International Space Station Weighs around 440 tons so this is let's say less than three starships and has around 915 cubic meters of pressurized volume total volume of course will be higher i couldn't find the number quickly but you get the idea so wow again it's a lot of payload mass and a lot of payload volume now I actually mentioned at the beginning that Starship differs from other rockets in at least three significant ways. And so far, we only talked about the first one of them. Again, the fact that it is a big, effing rocket. One other key difference is that the Starship system is entirely reusable. The idea is to reuse both stages, the booster and then the Starship upper stage. The super heavy booster will come back and do a propulsive landing, just like the first stage of the Falcon 9. Well, just much bigger than the Falcon 9. And Starship itself will also come back and do a propulsive landing. This makes the Starship system different from any other currently operating reusable rocket, which are at most designed to bring back the first stage, as is, for example, done by SpaceX with the Falcon 9, and also Rocket Lab is now working on it with its Electron rocket. The only company I can think of off the top of my head, which is actually working on a reusable second stage two is a US startup called Stokespace. Historically, the closest comparison in terms of reusability that we have is the space shuttle. And the shuttle's first stage were the two giant solid rocket boosters, which parachuted back to Earth. The space shuttle itself, of course, was also designed to come back to Earth. It landed horizontally. But there were some issues with the usability of the shuttle. And again, a detailed discussion of that goes beyond our scope today. But there is, for example, an excellent online MIT course just on the shuttle, which will teach you all about this. But suffice to say that the main issues included the complexity of the shuttle main engines and of its heat shield. In the end, this meant that the shuttle did not fly nearly as often as was originally imagined at the beginning of the 1970s when it was designed, and when people thought that the shuttle could fly pretty much all the time, serving use cases from, of course, delivering satellites, but also Use cases like space tourism and all the way to exotic sounding things like disposing of nuclear waste in space. But because of the issues I just mentioned, the shuttle did not nearly fly that much. Uh, it flew a total of 135 missions over 30 years. The usability issues and the much lower launch cadence importantly meant that shuttle launches were much more expensive than imagined. Actually, in the early 1970s, people thought it may be possible to launch a shuttle for five million US dollars a launch, that's in 1970s dollars and would be more something like 35 million dollars in today's dollars, inflation adjusted. But even that would be cheap. Keep in mind that the shuttle had a payload capacity of 29 tons, so it's actually quite a cheap price per kilogram if if that would have happened. The cost of a Falcon 9 is around 50 million dollars. In today's dollars but in reality each shuttle launch ended up costing many hundreds of millions of dollars and this brings me to the third key difference of the starship system over other launch systems and that is it's designed to provide cheap reusability and very importantly the idea is that starship will fly very often it will it is meant to achieve a very high launch cadence the latter of course the launch cadence it's not a technical design decision you understand it is a commercial business plan Decision and design. Shuttle launch cadence was basically dependent on commercial customers such as satellite companies, and of course, you know, an expected significant anchor demand by government customers such as NASA or the US Department of Defense. At least for commercial customers, the shuttle likely got itself into a vicious circle whereby lower than expected launch cadence because of the technical issues meant higher launch prices, which then further reduced launch demand. And then on you went from that. But this is where Starship is different. Starship via SpaceX has in-house captive demand, and this is right from the beginning by virtue of being a vehicle to deliver SpaceX Starlink communication satellites to orbit. The company is currently using Falcon 9 for that, taking around 60 Starlink satellites to orbit per launch. Now, the total Starlink constellation is suspected to be around 12,000 satellites with an average lifetime of maybe five years. So even after you have initially deployed the entire constellations, that means you have an average of 2,400 Starlink satellites that will need to be launched on a permanent basis to replace um, satellites, basically, that, that hit the five-year lifetime. But SpaceX has indicated that a Starship could take around 400 Starlink satellites in one go. So even if they don't end up dedicating any payload space on the Starship to um, you know, other customer payloads and actually think they will do on every launch, that would mean at least six Starship launches just for Starlink per year. And besides that, I believe there will be significant um, other commercial and government demand for the Starship system as well. Anyway, by virtue of what we discussed the last few minutes, we already segued over to the second part of today's discussion, and that is the commercial or business significance of Starship. The key thing here is how much Starship may lower the cost of getting to space to pretty much any destination. Elon has been mentioning a potential cost per kilogram in the tens of US dollars law of orbit the cheapest option right now is actually on a spacex falcon 9 rocket for somewhere below three thousand dollars if you take the entire rocket or five thousand dollars per kilogram to leo if you do a so-called ride share sharing the rocket with other customers dedicated rockets are even more expensive often north of ten thousand dollars for now per kilogram but that's not an apple to apple comparison Um, as those rockets get you to your final destination whereas with a rideshare you may have to or very likely have to take either a space tug for a connecting flight or simply spend time which equals money to get to your final destination yourself with your own propulsion. In any event we're talking about a potential decrease of up to two magnitudes in the cost of accessing space. Frankly it's mind-boggling. Can you get there? Can they do it? Well time will tell. Again, as we saw with the historical experience of the shuttle, it's important that the technology actually works and provides that cheap reusability and that you get to high launch cadence so you can achieve economies of scale and you can also amortize, depreciate your cost over many uses. If all works out, then the cost of launch should asymptotically approach something like the sum of the cost of propellant, um, some cost for refurbishment or maintenance of the rocket between launches, and range costs. And this is basically all similar to what you have um, with commercial aircraft, where the Ongoing cost is basically a combination of fuel cost and then some fees you pay to the airport and then again refurbishment and maintenance. Now, who would benefit from such dramatically lower costs to space? Well, anybody putting anything into space anywhere. And that includes people putting constellations into orbit, including, of course, again, SpaceX itself with its Starlink constellation. But Starship is also opening up deep space. We already mentioned that in orbit refueling may mean significant payload capacity, say north of 100 tons to places like the Moon or Mars. Mars is the reason Starship exists. And we could go down that rabbit hole for an entire episode, and maybe we will at some point in time, but let's just stay with the moon as an example for a minute. And in this context, you may also want to listen to the previous episode, which was with uh, Joachim Landsmann discussing the moon, and we are certainly discussing Starship for a few minutes there. Now, some startups that are focusing on what we call cislunar transport are currently taking bookings. For a price of around one million US dollars to deliver something, or actually one kilogram in this case, from from Earth to the lunar surface, the payload capacity of those companies, lunar landers, is at most in the hundreds of kilograms. Again, Starship may provide over 100 tons with refueling. If you work through the potential math, assuming a certain cost per Starship launch, assuming the total number of launches required to not only launch the 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 lunar starship itself, but also to launch other starships that will then refuel the lunar starship in Earth orbit. This requires multiple launches. You can see that if everything works, that price per kilogram from Earth to the lunar surface could maybe be in the thousands of dollars. And I suspect Elon would probably say even cheaper. But even if it's in the thousands of dollars, we are again looking at a drop in cost of something between two to three magnitudes. Again, it's mind-boggling. So much bigger capacity in terms of weight and volume and much lower cost. What can you do with that new reality? What would you do with it? And that brings me to the third and final part of today's episode. And that final part is sort of a call to arms aimed at entrepreneurs and potential entrepreneurs. Now, myself being a SpaceX fanboy and knowing a little bit about their system architecture, I am optimistic that Starship will indeed happen and that we'll get this new reality in terms of much higher capacity and much lower prices. And that this will all happen over the next few years. SpaceX is now talking about the first orbital test flight in the next few months, so still in twenty twenty one potentially. And yes, historically there has been the old joke and the concept of what we call Elon time, and Elon time being different from real time, sometimes being very optimistic. But one has to admit that SpaceX's progress on Starship development has been impressive. It's only two years ago that Starhopper, some people call it the Flying Water Tower, made a one hundred fifty hop in Boca Chica. So this potentially very significant change in the relatively near future, it's certainly a time frame that, that one can plan for at this point in time. So here's the irony. In my day job, being an early stage space venture investor, me and my partners see a lot of space business plans. Certainly many hundreds per year, and maybe it's over a thousand, I've never counted it exactly, but it's a lot of business plans. Of all of those business plans I have recently seen, I can off the top of my head think of maybe two or three that are explicitly betting on Starship working, using it, and exploiting its benefits like the payload capacity and the lower cost. So let me put on my head as that early stage space venture investor and say this very clearly to those of you out there who are entrepreneurially inclined. Be bold. As ice hockey legend Wayne Gretzky once famously put it, you want to skate to where the puck is going to be, not where it is right now. Right now, the vast majority of business plans we are seeing go to where the puck is right now. Going to where the puck is going to be is, of course, a higher risk, but the payout is also much higher. I could give you a number of examples from outside the space sector. For example, think of entrepreneurs who were developing apps that implicitly were betting on everyone having a smartphone even before. Everyone had a smartphone in any event. In space, Starship, I think, is where the puck is hopefully going to be. Work with that. Maybe you already had an idea in the past and discarded it for certain reasons like cost or volume or weight restrictions, but this may not change with Starship. Whatever you thought was too expensive, you may need to make the calculations again. Whatever you thought was constrained, whether it was constrained on weight or on volume or on launch timetables, again, you need to look at the new reality that we may have in the very near future. Again, be bold. And if you have that great idea that uses Starship, I'd be happy to look at that. Email us at liftoff at e2mc.space. Again, that is liftoff at e2mc.space, and we'll put it in the show notes. We love bold ideas. We love Starship. e2mc is called e2mc for a reason. It stands for Earth to Mars Capital. By the way, our executive and residence at e2mc, Guillermo Stone Line, Who was on the show a few weeks ago has also written an article giving essentially a very similar view on starship and we will link to that in the show notes too well that's it for today hopefully it was interesting to learn a little bit about starship and even more so i hope that it may have gotten some of you thinking about what to do with starship see you next time well that's it for another nominal episode of the space business podcast If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself, if you have an exciting space story to tell or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.